You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Jessica Veronica Couch. Jessica is a fit technology expert, strategist, writer, and speaker. Despite having a clear path to forge a career in law and join her family's practice, Jessica chose to follow her passions and craft a professional path that was all her own. She received her undergraduate degree from North Carolina State University in fashion product development and eventually launched a contemporary women's online boutique that used virtual styling methods to decrease the amount of returns of garments based on fit. At one point, she had aspirations of being a designer, but like most 26ers, Jessica decided to pivot and eventually turned her attention to fit tech. She obtained a master's in digital innovation and fit from Cornell University and is the founder of Luxor and Finch Consulting, a company that provides business and technology consulting strategies for other companies who are seeking innovative ways to address retail. She's also been instrumental in bringing together women of color in the fashion, tech, and finance industries for networking and support. As you'll soon learn, Jessica is really carving out a lane that's all her own. So here's her story. Please enjoy. Jessica. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. It's a Saturday. You came in with good energy for a Saturday. Super chill. Yeah. Thank you. I like it. And you might be our first get with the, guest with a knit hat on the show. And I'm, I'm with it. I'm Thank with this you. program. You know what? It's really, I wore it because I like how bright it is. Mm-hmm. And I was having a bad hair day because last night my uh, my scarf slipped off. So. Oh, no. When that happens, you can figure <laughs> it out. Yeah, I was like, but we got to go. We got to press on. <laughs> awesome. We're happy to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So let's get into it. Okay. Who is Jessica Veronica Couch? Um, Jessica Veronica Couch is the daughter of Finesse and Thurman. I love my parents and the foundation I set. I'm a sister. I'm a big sister and a little sister. Um, I'm a friend to a lot of people. And I would like to describe myself as a catalyst. Mm -hmm. So I've realized at this age, one of the gifts I guess I have is to help people like either break through something or get past something Mm -hmm. or just like discover something new. And that's in like personal and professional. So Mm -hmm. it kind of works out well to finally recognize like, okay, well, maybe that's who I am. So you're a middle child? I am. Mm. I'm actually one of seven. One of seven? Yes. Oh, your parents were busy. Make it happen. Yeah. (laughs) Busy, busy. I am. So I have three older brothers, Mm -hmm. one older sister, and then two younger sisters. Got it. So I'm kind of, I'm in the middle, but I'm like everybody's nurturing uh, sibling. Okay. So where did you grow up? Durham, North Carolina. Carolina. I I definitely heard the Southern draw a little bit. It comes out. Right. On the weekends. <laughs> so when I'm tired. you don't hear like of that many people in our age bracket who have that many siblings. Like our parents' generation. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. at this point, most people are like four max. Oh, yeah. But what was it like growing up with that many siblings? Honestly, I feel like growing up with a lot of siblings is fun. Mm-hmm. because it's so many different personalities. You kind of have your own ecosystem. Um, you learn a lot from everybody. You learn up and you learn down. Um, we grew up with very like protective, loving brothers and I have an older sister. Mm-hmm. For me, life was like a constant learning experience, but also trying to find your position in place. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be a lot. You know, when you're in a big family, you it's not that you have to compete for time or attention, but you got to know your lane sure. and figure out your entry point to whatever. My parents are um, very busy, but we kind of grew up like a gang. We're very mm-hmm. gang, gang, gang. Um, 
also, it's fun. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes it's fun, but also sometimes you are very annoyed. So, like, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, because it's a lot. But you learn to share, you learn to give, you learn to, like, let people do them. I think it's the best experience to learn how to deal in the world. Because mm-hmm. if you can deal and love with each one of your uh, siblings, if you can find a way to, like, connect and love with them, you'll be fine. Like, But were you, like... By the time you get to high school, like, I have to get out of here. Is that the vibe? Yes. So, like, very much so you're like, okay, I want to get as far away from my family as possible sometimes. But, again, because you're gang, like, eventually you're always like, I miss my tribe. Like, (laughs) I want people to think like me. But it does push you to go out there because you have a foundation of people that you can kind of draw from for support. Mm -hmm. So that's always cool. So, like, I have sisterhood. I have brothers. I have family. So... To me, it makes me feel more confident and, like, do more. Yeah. Because, like, at the end of the day, I can, you know, I have a team that'll cheer mm-hmm. for me. So that's cool. So you stayed in North Carolina for a while, though, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, my parents were like, you stay in state, we'll pay for it. So I'm like, <laughs> you're like, it's settled. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, to be honest, like, I wasn't as ambitious with picking colleges because I thought my life was going to go a different direction. Like, I thought I was just going to go to law school. Like, I was kind of passionate about things, but I didn't recognize what I was passionate mm-hmm. about. So um, I stayed in school. I got into Carolina early, but my sister went there. And it was one of those times I was like, we need to do separate things. <laughs> like, we're 18 months apart. Like, I'm going to go somewhere else. I wanted to focus on fashion, but like, I didn't have no real plans. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'll just stay in state, see how it goes. Now, looking back, I think I'm like, hmm, I probably could have utilized a lot more resources and yeah. stuff. But like, obviously, I'm going to push that on my kids. But yeah, I stayed in state, stayed around. And it was, I like Southern college mm-hmm. experience. I think it's a good college experience. Um, Going to a PWI is an experience. Unto itself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So that was very interesting. And NC State is unique. It has a really large demographic of African-Americans. So you kind of feel like you're in a mini HBCU amongst a group of 30,000 uh, other people who don't mm-hmm. look like you. So that was, it was cool. So at that point, were you still thinking I'm going to get like like a traditional major, prepare for law school, et cetera? Yeah, I was like, you know, I'm really interested in fashion. So like my aunt was a seamstress. Um, She used to make us like custom everything when we were younger. And I just happened to pick up on sewing. So she'd let me come in and sew. I used to change my clothes like three times a day. I was very connected to wearing what I felt. So like depending on my mood is what I would wear. And it was a big deal to me because coming from a house of seven people, again, like finding your identity, you're going to attach it to whatever you can so that you can feel like, okay, this is who I am. For me, it was how I looked. Like I could not wear things that I didn't like. Like Mm -hmm. I just could not. And, um... It was just something that stuck with me. So I was like, you know, I like this fashion thing. I want to learn about it. But uh, we have a family law practice. And my mom was grooming us all like, you're going to go to law school. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right. And like, I'll do this fashion thing, but I'll go to law school and work for my parents and we'll figure it out. So both your parents... We're in the in the law. Yeah. So they have a joint business together. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, at the time I was like, whatever, you know, I can have a little store on the yeah. side. I opened a store coming out of school and operated it for a couple of years because I was like, all right, I'm going to prepare to go to law school. And that did not happen. So where was the store? Online. OK. So like we did direct to consumer before direct to consumer was a thing. Mm-hmm. Only because I had worked in retail, like I'd worked at Nordstrom and I was like, I saw the gap in the industry where it was like people would come in at Nordstrom and be like, why don't you have this brand, this style, this thing? I've seen it. And there was no communication at Nordstrom's between like the sales associates and the buyers. So I was like, I'm going to fill this gap with mm-hmm. my store. That way, like I, I know the women who need what product, it'll be easy. So like um, I did that for a while. I didn't like sitting on inventory. So we found creative ways to sell through product. It was fun, but something hit and I was like, 
hmm, this is something I'm curious mm-hmm. about, like how we're able to connect with consumers. I love fashion. I love this. I don't want to give it up. I like entrepreneurship. And that's when my life turned upside down because I was like, so you make the decision. Yeah. Law school's not for me. Did you tell your parents? Oh, like, yeah. It was a tough. It was a my dad is always like, I had y'all on a seven year plan. Like You're supposed to go to undergrad. Then you're supposed to go to grad. You're supposed to come into this business. Like we have a whole thing set up. Y'all are not following the rules. It's in the third. So did he want all of you to do? Yeah, it was gang, gang, gang. <laughs> I kid you not. We he was like, we're about to build a mid-sized law practice. That's, and yeah. that's what they mm-hmm. wanted. And that's burdensome. So when you're like, um, I consider it second generation because what our parents established was not established prior to them in mm-hmm. any way. So I saw how hard they worked to put the law business together and how it helped to enrich our lives. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it was like an emotional obligation to be like, I want to support this, but this feeling I get from design and from this industry, from solving problems, like, mm-hmm. I don't get this anywhere else. And so I was like, um, I know this industry is changing. And I was like, I kind of made a bargain with them. I'm like, just let me try this. Mm-hmm. And if it fails, if all else fails, law school would be here forever. Right. I'll go back. Like, I'll figure it out. And they they were pretty patient with that. I mean, <laughs> that was a hell of a bargain. But it was like, um, just let me try this. Because I had a, I had a feeling. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very much so like, Everything's based on a feeling with me. So like I have to follow these instincts of like, I think this is where I need to be. And it's been a journey. Mm-hmm. Now, there are days when I'm like, should I have been a lawyer? <laughs> I'd be doing something completely different. But then there are days where I'm like, I love what I do. Right. I just got to keep going. Like, So you had that conversation with them. Yeah. You're like, give me this opportunity to, yeah. to try a different path. So what happened from there? The struggle. Yes, it's, it's real. It is real. The idea is great, but actually yeah. executing a whole different story. I feel like I lost their support realistically. Like, they're always going to support you and like, I'm not going to let you drown. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to let you drown, but I don't understand what you're doing. Uh, it's not what we want. Therefore, we can support you from afar. And I think sometimes that's good enough, but I struggled with that. Mm-hmm. When you're so used to having like, you know, a certain amount of support and pats on the back, when you choose to go independently, it can be tough. But my sister did it first. So my sister was like, my sister is very much like a very independent, like, I'm going to do what I want type Mm -hmm. person. And as a little sister, I'm like, I'm going to do it too. (laughs) So uh, she was a great influence for that. But it started a journey of accountability within yourself where you're like, now we've turned down an option of security. We are potential potentially disappointing our parents, which is tough. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a playbook for how this is going to go. So what do we do? Um, And the answer is you just hustle. Like you, you get out there, you make plans. Of course, you have your grand plans and your small plans, but you got to quickly pivot Mm -hmm. and you got to stay on your toes. And so I went from um, owning a store. My sister was at NYU getting her master's. So I asked her if I could come sleep on the couch and figure out my next step. Because I was like, I don't want to do the store thing anymore. I want to go beyond this. I think there's like an interesting thing happening in the industry where tech is going to innovate. So she's like, yeah, come to New York. You can sleep on my couch. So I went from like owning a business and running it to like doing internships for like 14 hours a day, like working between two companies. I was working at Tracy Reese and then I was working as a stylist. And what I was looking for was like, is my hypothesis correct? Is Mm -hmm. tech going to innovate this industry or am I just making an assumption based on my little store? And what I found was like, oh, this industry is inherently flawed all across the supply chain. So there was so many opportunities to innovate. But you're talking about big, um, non-flexible companies. And we're talking about an industry that's so antiquated and backwards that it's like to really make those changes, you have to be there for the long term. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know every... I wish I could say like I knew 
every step in every way. But a lot of this was fumbling. A lot of this was just like, I'm going to follow an instinct. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to keep it moving. What's next? You know, I got to figure some stuff out. It hasn't been a straight path whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But um, what I did decide was like, I have this opportunity to get into this space that is going to be new. And I want to prepare myself as a thought leader. So I was like, I love fashion. I understand the consumer part. Like, but now let's go to tech. So I didn't come from a tech background. I was like, I got to get in this. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, let's go to grad school. So one of my friends encouraged me. She was like, why don't you come to Cornell? Like, I think you would really like it. I'm like, girl, right. Listen, I'm doing a whole lot, but I don't know if that's like on my radar. She was like, no, you need to try it. So at the time I was styling, I was working for Tracy Reese and I was building up a styling career in New York quickly. Like, How was that happening? So by being proactive. So I was interning with this other company called um, Camilla Lothar or something agency and it was for stylists. And I was there and I asked one day, I was like, I want to be on set. And they were like, okay, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to be on set. The next day they were like, okay, you can go to set and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, I didn't even know what I was asking. So I go to set and it's like a Vogue Japan set. So I'm all hype. I'm like, oh my God, it's Vogue. Oh my God, what is this? <laughs> and so um, I'm there. I'm the only black person. I'm helping. And this Asian girl named Regina, she's like, hey, will you help me? I'm like, cool. So we're working hard. She's a hard worker. I noticed she's like in charge of everything. And she tells me afterwards, she was like, no one's ever worked this hard with me. Listen, if you come work with me, like I'll put you in the game. I can't afford to pay you, but I can give you connects. Mm -hmm. And I'm young and scrappy. So I'm like, all right, well, let's just do it. Let's figure it out. Um, So we worked a lot of Vogue sets and I worked a lot of different... um, magazine set says like a third assistant worked my way up and then got all the way to uh, the Lady Gaga like art pop Mm -hmm. um, set. That is when I was like, hmm, this is a trajectory for success. But looking at the numbers, I was like, how am I supposed to survive? You know, fashion doesn't pay on that side. But Regina Chan is now like the um, editor at Vogue China. So like it was interesting to make that connection and have that and see how it worked and see what hard work gets you. But I made the decision like if I'm going to make it in this industry as a woman of color, um, what do I want my legacy to be? You right. know? So I'm trying on like $500,000 minks and stuff for people that are so out of touch with me and I'm like steaming stuff and I'm setting it up and you're looking on these call sheets and you're seeing like these head stylists are getting like $8,000 just to show up for a couple hours. You're doing all this work. Your rate is not even a fraction of that. And I was like, this can't be my legacy. Like, I I feel like I'm too smart. Not to say that you can't be smart and style. It's just like, I want to contribute more. So I was like, I got to go to school because for me to get out of this, I'm going to have to like position myself. So I made a decision to apply to Cornell and I pitched this lady about why my experience up to that point, what I was passionate about, fit, um, sizing. And she said, I'd love to see your application across the desk. So to me, I was like, Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. So I applied. I moved home to prepare. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time. We were kind of in a rocky situation, like, but I was zoned in. And when I got the letter that it was going to happen, I just remember feeling like, wow. So I was like, my life is about to change forever. And I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know how we're going to do this, but let's just roll. So, so you moved to, to Cornell, yeah. which is not New York City, that's for sure. So, you know, the funny thing is the degree was supposed to be in New York, mm-hmm. but at the last minute they didn't get it approved. So I remember 
professor, Susan P. Ashdown, was like, hey, good news and bad news. Good news is we'd love for you to come up here. The bad news is it's not going to be in New York anymore, but you get to be close to all the research and stuff. I'm like, okay, so you're up at the gorgeous, whatever they call it. Yes, (laughs) I'm like, Ithaca. And on top of that, by the time I got in, they were like, you have a month to report to campus. So I'm like, me and my best friend were supposed to go skydiving. She ended up going alone by herself. God bless her. She's such a champ. And I was like, I got to go to school. So like I hustled a car to buy because I I had this big truck and I was like, I'm not taking that up Mm to uh, Ithaca. I hustled a car, got everything together, got all my paperwork. And I was like, I don't, I don't even know how I'm going to find a place to live. Mm -hmm. I did. Thank you, Lord. And I was like, I'm out. Like, I'm out. The best thing about that was I got to pick my curriculum. Okay. That was incredible. Like, So the, is this like a customized yeah. kind of degree? Okay. And it was special. It was a master's degree that they were offering. And she was like, you can basically pick your curriculum and figure out what industry problem you want to solve. And I had never heard of anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, I know I need business classes, engineering classes, computer science classes, and I need to understand like the basic fundamentals of where the industry is going. Mm -hmm. And so I use that as a time to challenge myself because I feel like through all this, my life has been about outdoing myself. Yeah. Like I don't consider anyone else competition or anything like that. For me, again, I I guess it's because of my place and like with my siblings, everything's about outdoing yourself. Mm -hmm. Like you don't really have competition is more like can you get better daily? Yeah. So I wanted to challenge myself with my education and be like, can you push past what you know and really be able to speak to the things that you want to become? And it was a challenge, but you got to do that sometimes. You got to do it a lot. And where were your parents in all this? Were they excited that you were going back to school, even though it wasn't for the law? So (laughs) prior to me getting into school, they were not excited about what I was doing. They're just like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if this fashion thing is a joke for you out here doing this. Like law school's waiting. When I got into school, the first thing they were like was like, let me see the acceptance. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not making it up. So once they saw that, they were like a little more hands off, like, okay, let's see what you're going to do. And I appreciate the tough love from my parents. Like, they're not going to be overly like, oh my God, I'm so happy. They'll be like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, now make it work. Like, all right, if you're going to go, you know, make it work. And it was kind of like a deal still because I compromised. I was like, you all want us to get higher degrees. I didn't want to get a higher degree unless it was top 10. Right. Because I realized going to NC State and it's a great school. I was like, if you're not top, you don't really get taken seriously. So you can be the top anywhere and be taken seriously. But for what I wanted to do in my industry, being a woman, being of color, not coming from tech, I had to go high or not Mm -hmm. go at all. So they understood that and they were like, all right, you got time to make it work. Talk to me when you wrap up your program. Really? Yeah. So like I, the next time I saw them um, was they came up to Ithaca once during graduation and be like, okay, you did it. Congratulations. This is very fascinating, but there's also a part of me that understands it. Mm-hmm. When you talk to um, Black folks who have Black parents who've taken a very traditional path and oh built God. an amazing life. Yeah. Um, for themselves and their families, there's an expectation that you are going to go the safe route. Oh, yeah. And they don't want to see you flounder. And Mm -hmm. I I understand where it comes from because their fear is like, I know how tough it was for me. I understand like the burden on our race and like how we're looked at. I don't want you floundering. I don't want you to not have wealth. I don't want you to struggle. And it's like, I completely understand that, but we're in a different time. Mm -hmm. And we also have to be able to take risks and take advantage of these opportunities. So it's good to have both sides, but it's also pressure. Sure. It's pressure, man. Like there's so many times you're like, am I making the right decision? Like, am I an idiot? And it's it's hard, but I also had to let go of the need to have their approval. Yeah. 
And that was tough. I was an adult when I did that. Like, it wasn't like it happened. Like, I'm a teenager. I don't need your help. It, I had to be a grown up and be like, I don't need your approval. I just need your love and we'll be straight. And that helped yeah. a lot. But the irony of this is you were at Cornell. You weren't, weren't at like the random school on the corner for I fashion know. and design. I know. <laughs> I know. And my parents are still like, I mean, we're proud of you. This is great. But uh, make it work. <laughs> Law school awaits you. I remember my mom was like, this will make it even easier for you to get into a law wow. school. I was like, ma, the they, they roll hard. They roll hard. They on don't the play. <laughs> it's so much to the point I'm like, should I still go? <laughs> wow. And how many years have you been out of college? Um, I graduated in 2010. So, 10 so they're, they're still holding out hope. Yeah. 10 years out feels so weird. Mm-hmm. I've already been there. Yeah. Oh it doesn't get God. any better. Let no, me just does. tell you. 10 years? God, I'm be like 15 years ago. Yeah, I'm on the 16 year. Yeah, it 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 starts to feel away after yeah. a while. People are gonna listen to this and like I've been out 30 years. Yeah. You know, wait for that. But it's like I feel like I was just there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but yeah, so there's, I mean, there's still like if you want to, we'd love to have you. I'm like I'd like to transition into a consulting company or agency, but that's a different discussion. Right. So you you come out of Cornell. Yeah. You've crafted this curriculum around business and engineering and computer science. What was the vision for you then in terms of the next step in your career? I was like, oh, you know, I want to work in a for a fashion tech company. I want to go corporate like and like really apply all these innovative techniques. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just too early. Mm -hmm. It was just early that didn't exist. So I actually ended up like beginning to consult without knowing that I was about to go into independent consulting. Okay. And so like uh, the positions that I wanted didn't quite exist quite yet. So either you were still tech or you were fashion and fashion hadn't integrated. And there's no R&D in fashion. So there's no dedicated department that's like, hey, we'd love to hire people that are tech minded and fashion minded. So once again, I was like, well, I have to make this myself, which it's ambitious and uh. It's a it's an admirable thought. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was about to get into. Yeah, because I'm like, okay, people go to graduate school, whether you go for education yeah. or, you know, professional degree or whatever. You Once you have those credentials, it's like, I'm just going to go over here and get this job. Yeah. Right. So that I've now I have the, the credentials. I'm going to make the money. Yeah. Right, that really justifies the tuition. Right. right? What it just right. to go. But you're in an area like which is like laughable today because you think rent the runway, like yeah. all these things where fashion and tech is is it. It's all the rage. Yeah. Um, but you're coming out at a time where you're you are getting the skills, but you're yeah. ahead of your time and in, in a sense. Which if you if if you were not black, we might be having a different conversation. Cause you might have been like, Well, I just built my own company from the ground up because somebody gave me a million dollars to do it. Just to try it and right. to fail. But that's not the story. It's not the story. So how are you breaking into consulting at that point? In in an industry that was still in like its infantile or embryonic phase? Through actually writing really shifted my life. Okay. So um I wrote a lot. Uh, just as soon as I had a business, when I first like had my online store, I started writing tips. And then um, through grad school, I wrote a lot. Like t- to date, I have like 80 published articles. Mm-hmm. The writing changed everything. And it was just a hobby. I was just so passionate about it. I didn't have an outlet. It wasn't a lot of things where I could be like, hey, like you want this white paper? So I just wrote and I put it on LinkedIn. That kind of started to position me as a thought leader early. And I think it's interesting because these skills that you don't really think about play such a big role in your life. Had I not started writing, so many opportunities would have been lost. So like, 
if I didn't write, if I didn't give tips, if I didn't research and put in the extra work, I wouldn't be where I am. But also writing seemed like a waste of time sometimes. It's like no one's listening and no one's paying you to do it. But you put in that type of work so that you can establish yourself and have credibility. And that brought me clients. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw that was working, I was like, thank you, God. So I wasn't sure I was going to do this. But writing brought me so many companies that would be like, I read your article. I saw what you said. Do you think you can help us with that? And I'm like, yeah. At first I was like, yeah, I can help. Here's how it works. Then one day I was like, yeah, I can help. I need a little money. Okay. Y'all got to pay me. No more free help. That's what the article's for. So I kind of stumbled into consulting in that way. So then I'm writing, I'm helping companies and I have to retrain myself to be like, well, I'm not sure about this. So now I got to, you know, listen to YouTubes about this or take a little course in this and like Mm -hmm. stay ahead. But you're still a little early because everyone's like, who cares about fit and sizing? And we've been doing arbitrary sizing for 25 years. And it's like, when you look at your bottom line, this is going to affect you. And that conversation didn't really get popular until recently. Mm-hmm. So I was just really trying to stay afloat. And I I did a little stint in corporate. It wasn't for me. I was like, this is not the type of things I want to work on. It's a waste of eight hours of my day. What were you doing? So I worked for this company called Electra, and they basically were like a SaaS company and they had some machinery for the intersection of fashion and technology as it related to the supply chain. So they just made machines and programs mm-hmm. that made it easier for brands to do what they did. Okay. And that was to me boring. I was just like, this is boring. Yeah. That doesn't strike me as your jam at yeah, all. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I can't do this. Like, not at all. So um, Luxor and Finch, which was originally the name of my store, I just kept it. I kept my LLC. It converted into the consulting company mm-hmm. after school and we fumbled our way through it. We were like, let's just get, let's just start working. And honestly, like my first clients were tech companies okay. who were like, we want to be in fashion, but we have no experience in fashion. So can you be that liaison? And I'm like, absolutely. And I understood enough tech to be like, um, to be able to communicate. And the my very first company, Footsie, they were amazing, but they were Canadian. So okay. their attitude about you being a woman of color and you having this diverse background was not as off-putting as other companies mm-hmm. who would be like, well, you're not a white man. Right. So do you know anything? Right. And it's like, I don't have time to prove myself like this. So Footsie was very much like, we read your stuff. We think you're brilliant. Come work, work with us. And that was a blessing. Um, Footsie's having a tough time now, but they were a great team of people who had an idea about like having a foot scanning app mm. and when it would match you to shoes. So that was really cool to be on that team. Yeah. I learned, like I pretty much started doing um, marketing strategy and shipped it into product management. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even realize that product management was a role that was best fit for me until I worked with them. So was there a gap? Because, you know, we tell these stories yeah. and it's, it can, it condenses timeframes, mm-hmm. right? When you got out of school, mm-hmm. you had written, you've done all these things. Mm-hmm. And were people reaching out to you immediately? When I was in school, yes. But mm-hmm. it wasn't to the point where it was like, oh, I'm about to have a salary from yeah. this. So like, yeah, when I left school... What, what did I do? I was like, I need to rebuild my consulting business. So I actually moved back to North Carolina because okay. I thought that I could do it from North Carolina. I'm like, there's plenty of brands in North Carolina I can work with. Mm-hmm. This will be easy. So I was dating a guy and he was like, well, you know, I'll help you. Like, I'll mm-hmm. support you during that time. I'm like, OK, that sounds cool. <laughs> that was a trick. It was more like, I don't yeah, I already know how this goes. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, his intentions were great, but I think like he wanted something different. I think he thought I was going to move home and just like turn into a wife. Yeah. And it was like, I just gave birth to this company. Mm -hmm. I have to 
feed it, grow it, nurture it, get it off the ground. Like, mm-hmm. that's what I'm here for. So I ended up moving back to New York when I realized, like, I can't hop on a flight every week. Right. And I'm pretending like I'm in New York and I'm not. It's just too much. I got to go. And um, so I made that leap. But it was some gaps. There's always some time where you're just like, hmm. This wasn't on my schedule. <laughs> it's not how I saw this going. Where's my glamorous life? <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a gap for that. And then coming to New York, I worked with some other tech companies. So I was working in and out of these offices and it was cool. And then one day I was like, I have to commit to going solo full time. Mm-hmm. Like I can't double dutch in and out of this anymore because either we're going to do this or we're not. And that was when life got real, real, real different. Yeah, because that net 30, net 60, companies don't respect, they don't respect those independent invoices all the time. Where's my money? Uh, well, it's so much money that has to be chased. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Um, And what I didn't know starting out was how much I needed help. I didn't know that. When you get so used to moving independently, asking for help, letting people help you, it's, you don't even think about it sometimes. Right. So... The first year I did great. I was surprised with myself. I had gotten lucky. I worked with a company. The second year was tough. Second year was tough because the company started going under and then I had to scramble and like my timing for things. Like you have to be out here trying to get clients while working with clients, while building content, while doing all this stuff. And I got burnt out. And so the third year is when I was like, I need help. And ironically, I was on LinkedIn. I reached out. I was like just looking at women of color who were in my field and just reaching out and people didn't respond. This one girl responded. She worked for Amazon. Her name was Brittany Hicks. And I I was like, hey, Brittany, I'm looking at your background. It's great. Can I just like pick your brain? She was like, absolutely. Sure. So she's like, here, take my number. And her number was a 919 number. And 919 is North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, girl, where are you from? She was like, I'm from Raleigh. I'm like, I'm from Durham, which are like neighboring. Literally right next to each other. And then we realized like so much of our life was parallel. So like we were both AKAs. We both went on this fashion tech route. We both had similar friends. She ended up being one of my partners. So she's a partner with me now. Mm -hmm. And everything that we've built together has been effortless. It's been profitable and it's been easy. It was so much easier than even consulting. And it made me realize like the beauty of partnership when it is correct, it is amazing. It is blessed. Because I was praying, I was like, Lord, I cannot do this by myself. I need a partner or a sugar daddy or something like just We already established that sometimes the sugar ain't sweet. So I I didn't know what was going to happen, but meeting her helped because what we did, we were like, well, we're both in fashion tech. We need to meet other women to make this happen. How do we expand our networks? Because so much of this business is networks and referral. Mm -hmm. Like I'm here because of a referral from a friend and we're all in the same industry, but that's how this business works. Right. Shout out to Erica Nunez. (laughs) And the artist kit. Go get one. Um, So it's very interesting because... The partnership part changed business for me permanently. And I was like, oh, I don't have to go back to as much struggling if I focus on partnering and like scaling back when I'm doing to something more uh, digestible. So what were you guys building together? Great question. So we decided we were like, okay, we need to meet more women of color in the fashion tech space. How are we going to do that? So we brainstormed a lot of things and we were like, you know what? Women like to eat. Women like to drink. Why don't we just treat women to brunch. And those who are interested in really networking, they can come to the brunch. Mm -hmm. We'll put a panel together and we'll just get people together and see if they're struggling like us. Um, So we planned our first brunch September 8th, 2018. Uh, We didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) Isn't that how it always goes? My sister had like a Soho House membership. I was like, can we use the Soho House? She was like, sure. Like, I don't care. So I'm like, hey, I'm Courtney Couch and I'd like to book an event. (laughs) So we booked an event. Uh, We planned it. Uh, We put it on our credit card. It was just like we had no idea what we were doing. 
we asked for panelists and so many of our like network friends were like, okay, we'll come through. I remember we had asked Misa Hilton, could she come? So she was like, oh, you know, cool. Like, is there an honorarium? We were like, I don't know what an honorarium is, but we don't have it. So, but she ended up being like, I'll come anyway. Mm -hmm. So we got 35 women together in our industry, our friends. We had them at the Ludlow house. It was for a champagne brunch, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know what we're doing. We threw it together. It turned out to be one of the best events we've ever done. People cried in the room. People did business deals in the room. People were like, oh, I was emailing you last week. We needed to get you into Barney's. We love this brand. All of this happened in one room. Mm -hmm. And we realized like, this is something like right. this is something. And so the demand for it went crazy. Now, funny story. We had a champagne brunch. So we had finagled us a sponsorship with Moe and they gave us like eight cases of champagne for the women there. So we're at the Ludlow house the night before. Brittany, um, she was working out of a WeWork because she was still working for Amazon. Then now she's independent and we work together. We have a, a co-company called Federal Road. Um, but so the night before she gets the champagne shipped to a WeWork. It's the wrong WeWork. I was about to say, tell me that it showed up at the correct WeWork, please. Not only did it go to the wrong one, but this was Saturday night. And on Sunday, nobody, nobody was there. Is at WeWork. So, I had a WeWork office at one. <laughs> so the day of brunch, everything's like, okay, we're nervous. Everything's going fine. We're looking at the time. We're like, okay, so where's the champagne? She's like, okay, let me just go in the WeWork and get it. It's not there. So we're like, we've told people we're going to give them a champagne brunch. Where's our champagne? So we're panicking. WeWork is like, nobody's on duty. Mm-hmm. It's Sunday. The building managers are like, the the guy who could open it is out of town. So now we're in a panic because we're like, brunch starts in 30 minutes. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So get this. This is how great Black women are. So there was a girl named Kiera. And Kiera, we originally wanted to put her on the panel, but it didn't work out and we had to put somebody else. But she was the head of WeWork for um, the New York. So she... Um, so we had been communicating with her, but she wasn't coming to the brunch that day. So it was no big deal. I called her at like 11 a.m. like, hey, girl, I know you're supposed to be on our panel and it didn't work out. But we have a funny situation. We have X amount of cases of champagne locked in and we work and our brunch is starting. Could you help us? She said, um, yeah, I'll be there in an hour. Just have somebody meet me. I'll get up. She was in Jersey. That is or crazy. Black women get it done. And it was like. I cannot describe that feeling when it was just kind of like, it was a day where everything that could go wrong goes wrong, but you pivot and you stay focused and you stay like, we're going to make this happen. And then everything comes back around in a way better than you imagined. So we ended up getting the champagne out. We had been like, Using the Ludlow House's champagne. So we were trying to replace their champagne. It was like in a brunch, we're handing out bottles of champagne. Did they know you were using? They their- were down. The, the staff was so cool. They were like, okay, we know y'all don't have it. So we'll trade out when mm-hmm. you get it. So they were very okay. cool. We were sending interns to buy champagne, but our guests had no idea. Mm-hmm. And so like this champagne debacle taught me and Britt a lot about how we work together. Because yeah. she was like, oh, I'm sorry. I said, listen, it's not a you thing. It's a us thing. Right. We got to get this done. It's fine. But we made a way out of knowing. Thank you, Lord. And every brunch after that has been ultra amazing. We've been to LA, we've been to Seattle, wow. we've been to DC, we've been to Atlanta. Our next one is coming up in February. But like from the brunch came workshops. Mm-hmm. So we're about to do a workshop series. We just got a partnership with Essence to do a fashion accelerator for nice. people of color. It was so much came out of the brunch. Um, consulting deals came out of it. And that was just from a desire to be like, we just want to connect. Mm-hmm. We just want to partner. And sometimes... 
what your idea of business is and what you're going to do is one thing, but if you're not flexible, you'll miss another opportunity. Right. Like I still consult, but the what the brunch did was position us into another lane and make it supported what I'm doing and it's taken off on its own. Mm-hmm. We got sponsorships through that. So we learned how to raise money, how to put things together, how to make things meaningful for our guests. It was like, to me, I would describe it as having two kids. I felt like I had two kids at yeah. once, but it was rewarding to see like, okay, my business is going this way. This is growing. We got to respond to it. So that was beautiful. I met Erica at a brunch. She wow. came to one of the brunches. Well, the, I just, just to go back a little bit. Yeah. I find it fascinating that you got anybody from Jersey to come to New York on a Sunday when they didn't have to. Because that's Listen, a whole, that's a whole feat in and of itself. She, I, I mean, she was the graciousness, the just the like, I see what you girls are mm-hmm. doing. You need me. I got you. That has been the sentiment amongst women of color every time that we've reached out. And I know people are like, oh, well, Black women are hard to deal with because they have so many different attitudes. That has not been our complete experience. Our experience has been like, when we need Black women to show up and show out, they do so without needing anything. She was like, let me get up on my Sunday, come out here, help you girls, no big deal. Graciously, she could have been like, I thought y'all said I was going to be on the brunch, (laughs) on the panel, Mm, I'm busy. And it's just like, it also taught us like, There's a misconception about Blacks working together. Right. I think it's just that we have to get past these preconceived notions that we have with other women Mm -hmm. as well. It's like one of the things we do at our brunch when everyone comes in, we hug them and we talk to them by name. Like, Mm -hmm. we know who you are. We have a picture of you. We hug you because we want you to know you're coming into an atmosphere where you're wanted, you're appreciated, and we want to share something with you. And that changes the tone and the atmosphere. All the time in our brunch, it always turns into like a yes, like Mm -hmm. testify, like because I feel like if you give out a certain energy, people will match that. Right. And like both Britt and I have really strong personalities and energy. So if you have the ability to shift a room when you come in, that's your duty to do mm-hmm. so. Like you just can't come in and be like, well, everybody seems stank here. So I'm going to be stank too. Like, no, like, you know what? I'm going to speak. Right. I'm going to introduce myself. I don't care about the response. I'm going to do it so that people know like, hey, I'm here. If you want to chat, whatever, no big deal. And I think that with Black women, that's something we're all going to have to learn because we're all kind of like, I think a lot of Black women are like, "Mm, I don't know about her. Right. And I think that comes from having to be on guard in a lot Mm -hmm. of environments out Mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a default setting. Absolutely. Um, And also, too, one of the things that my friends and I joke about Mm -hmm. is sometimes what is really social anxiety Mm -hmm. comes off as standoffish. It does. That's so real. You're like, I'm nervous. I don't know these people. I don't know what type of atmosphere Mm -hmm. I'm in. I don't know if I'm going to be judged. That's a real thing. And it's just like, how do we take steps to get past that? Yeah. And for me, I'm like, the first step is to get past it on yourself. Mm -hmm. So like, I get nervous amongst a lot of people. Like people think I'm really outgoing. I'm kind of like, I'm shy. Like, but it's like, if I want the tone to be a certain way, then let me present that. Mm-hmm. Because what's the worst that could happen is like people don't speak back to you like Miss New York. Like, right. <laughs> I'm not going to cry about that. So that has been a learning experience as well. It's just like, how do you present yourself and how do you make an impact in any group that you're in? Yeah. Because Black women are the wave. Like, we're the way. We are gatekeepers. We're at the forefront of every industry. We're the ones making decisions. Now we just have to link up Absolutely. in meaningful ways. And I think also one thing that's really important is it's funny when I go to these events Mm -hmm. or when I've hosted them, 
there are always tears that happen always. because it becomes a safe space that people didn't even know they needed yeah. to have an outlet with those that understand and can relate yeah. to the struggles, especially if it's specific to industry. Because oh. it can feel like you're on an island when you're trying to disrupt or innovate All the time. or just blaze your own trail or yeah. just be the only Black woman in the room. Just survive as the only Black in the room. Right, exactly. So when you get into a situation where somebody is literally testifying to your experience, um, there's that common bond that is built instantly. Absolutely. And this is why I'm like such a proponent of these spaces yeah. um, because it's great to get cued yeah. and, you know, put the makeup on and have champagne. But it's that that spiritual it's feeding spiritual. that you get as well that is really, really important. And I think a lot of women are spiritual and no matter what your belief is, our intuition, our ability to just perceive things like it's a part of our nature and we have to learn how to embrace those things, even in working environments or social environments yeah. and all of that. And I think that's why it's important for us to have safe spaces and conversations and to push ourselves because I also think that being the most highly educated group right now is isolating. Mm -hmm. We're also the most imitated. We're also the most unprotected group. So it's like, it is not easy. And I'm not saying that it's not tough to be a Black man. I absolutely know that it is. And I'm glad I'm not a man. I think mm -hmm. that the privilege of being a woman is just what it is. But it is not easy to be a woman of color who is striving for something mm -hmm. and who has to have integrity and hold things down. Like, it's tough, but it gets easier when you see other women doing it and when you have their support. Absolutely. Because it's like, we can't, we can't just exist singularly. Like we have to be in tune with each other. For sure. And one of the things that you mentioned from a tactical perspective that I want to touch on is the sponsorship piece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I talk to people every week yeah. who have an idea. They're like, I want to put this event on. I want to do this, but I don't know how to go about it. And I don't necessarily have the money mm -hmm, to finance the mm -hmm. whole thing. And I don't have the access mm -hmm to get sponsors. Um, and people just have an inherent belief that when you're new, you can't get them because you have no track record. Yeah. So how did you go about that? Um, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, working as a product manager helped me out a lot because mm -hmm. when you're thinking about lean and agile development, you think about really understanding your customer, like who you're building services to and then how to create value. And when you translate that into asking for money and sponsorship, you realize like, hey, let's understand exactly what companies we're going after, mm -hmm. what need we can fulfill with them. And let's speak to them to that value. So even though we're new, what we did was we, for instance, were like, who wants to support women of color? Who wants to see women of color in creative and tech fields make progress? Who has a budget for it and who can we speak to? Mm -hmm. And then we made a list of those companies and we pitched them. And the value was we're going to bring together this type of woman that you are interested in expanding your brand to. Here's how we can partner. Start at this amount and then we can grow this. What do you all want in return? So I think having that conversation and knowing how to ask those questions is very important. You've got to know how to ask the right thing. Do your research. It's not hard. You just have to hustle. I was you about got, to say, you got to put hook. the work in. Because people want to make the ask yeah. without having had anything like that someone can hold on to and say, OK, this is real. Anything Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like rely on your network. So much of our things came from Black women yeah. who were in these positions who were like, OK, well, you know what? I think we can get you something because I support this. That was like a really big deal. Brittany has like Brittany went to A&T and the HBCU network is strong. Seriously. Unmatched. Unmatched. Only and which is closely related. But I think the only like similar thing is the Greek network. Like yeah. the Black Greek network is... <laughs> It's it is like the black boule. Yeah, yes. it's amazing. I mean, 
the HBCU network has been so beneficial to us. And the attitude is a little different. Yeah. So I don't know if because you go to a PWI that you're like, I'm the only black mm-hmm. and this is it. I work hard <laughs> to be here. I can't let y'all other blacks in. I'm sorry. But something about HBCU culture is like, you black, I'm black. Mm-hmm. Come on in. Let me help you. And not to say that people from PWIs aren't helpful. It's just been different. So a lot of our opportunities come from tapping resources and like people who look like us. And that is going to be a huge help partnership. The best way to get sponsorships is to understand your network, understand your value, convey that value in a succinct way, and also be able to convey what that company is going to get in return. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times you're like, I need your money because, you know, it's a great cost, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, what are you giving them in return? They want data. They want metrics. They want, they might want email lists. You have to have that ready to be able to give to and also be able to convey like this can become a long-term relationship. So think down the road, present that. And um, it will be hard for people to say no. Also, timing. Mm -hmm. So you got to know, like in the fourth quarter, people decide their budgets for the next year. Yes. Getting good. It's And sometimes it's not even an issue of people not wanting to work with you. It's like, we have all our money tied up. So sorry. So timing is perfect. Understanding that. And then like your range. Sometimes a lot of companies can swipe $500 to $5,000. Like it's not hard for them to say like, okay, I can just put that on a card. Mm -hmm. If you want to go above that, it can get more difficult. So you have to think about timing. But if you can say like, okay, we need 10 people at the $500 range, three people at the $5,000 range and break it up like that, it makes it a little easier too. Because if you come in like, we need a million dollars. And I think that's part of the problem (laughs) sometimes. Like people are shooting for the stars and like, that's great. Yeah. And sometimes you have those miracles that happen yeah. where someone's like, okay, I'm just going to write you a check. But for the most part, that is not happening. That's not how it is. So, it's a slow yeah, run. You got to like kind of find more uh, more people who can give you smaller amounts to Absolutely. get you to that goal. And think beyond, I think the issue, and I've had this mm-hmm. too, this misconception that like, oh, I have to prove that I have this many followers online. Or no. like we use these methods yeah. based on social media, which oftentimes they're not even real. But that's a whole other yeah. conversation, Come right? <laughs> um, but there are ways that you can add value. Yep. That's not about I have 50,000 or 100,000 followers on Instagram. And the reality of it is when you're talking about Black women, especially women of color, companies that want to reach us, we'll start with small numbers. Absolutely. They just want to infiltrate. And as you mentioned, let it grow over time. Sometimes saying like, hey, we have a 50% email open rate Mm -hmm. is a big deal. Yeah. Because people don't open email. So you're like, we have a community that's so engaged with what we're doing that when we send an email, we get 50% open rate. Mm -hmm. Companies understand that and they're like, okay, so y'all have an engaged community. We want to work with you. Um, It's just very important. You don't have to have big metrics. You just have to have metrics that show growth or show that like this makes sense in the long term. Mm -hmm. Here's how we are projected to grow with your help. Also, don't turn down the in-kind sponsorships. Yeah. Because let's say Google's like, well, we can't give you any money, but we'll give you a space and we'll give you donations for your gift bag. You can now say you're still sponsored by Google. Absolutely. And once you say like Google sponsored us, other companies are like, oh, Google sponsored us. Like, yep. So go ahead and give us our money. It makes it easier. So sometimes you got to understand the long-term play and, you know, just get out there and get something is better than nothing. But uh, people want to see that other people believe in you as well. Right. Absolutely. So at this point, you started in fall 2018. Yeah. How many of these have you done total? About seven brunches now. Yeah. So what kind of turnout are you seeing? And the most recent one. So we started with 35 people. The last one we had had 100 people and we turned away like 75. So it's growing faster than we anticipated. We want to keep it small and intimate so that you can have conversations. But we also know that we have to kind of like 
we have to make sure that people who want to participate can. So we've opened up for workshops this year because a lot of women at brunch were like, I love this brunch. I love what y'all touched on. Can like, is there some way that everyone can go deeper? Like, can we create a workshop? And so I kept hearing that. So I'm like, Britt, we got to do workshops. Yeah. So now we're um, setting up for a workshop series. So let, let's say you can't make it to brunch for whatever reason. You can come to the workshop that's specific to whatever your interest is mm-hmm. and get like actionable information. Because there's nothing worse than when you're going somewhere and you're like, I heard your life story, but you didn't tell me nothing. I right. didn't make my life better. So that's what we're doing because the demand for our community is growing a lot. And um, even like, We just went to D.C. and we had 150 people come to a workshop in D.C. And we didn't think that it would be that huge. We went to L.A. It was the same thing. And we're we're seeing people that's not only in fashion and tech, but media, PR, Mm -hmm. beauty, because they're like, I just want to be in a room where it's women of color as the central focus. Um, Even men are always like, can we come to y'all's brunch? We're like, "Mm -mm, no. (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> but now we're like, because so many men ask, we're thinking about at the end of brunch, having a mixer where we allow men in, but you have to come from companies that want to support women of color. You can't just come to try to like scoop up all the baddies. Like you need to come <laughs> with a checkbook or something, support these women. So we're thinking about allowing men to come, but for the mixer, because still it's like, no, we need our intimate yeah. space. Go away. So what I always find fascinating about people who are in the fashion mm-hmm. world is, of course, there's a, um, I feel there may be a pressure to embody that outwardly. Mm. So this is a purely superficial mm-hmm. question. Yes. But like one of the things that I I talk to my friends who work in the fashion business, I'm like, you got to be on, you know, at all times. Do you feel pressure um, to look like new money all the time because you work in fashion? That is a great question. <laughs> that is a really good question. Um, Not necessarily. So because we don't work on the runway side, like if we dealt more on the um, like everything adjacent to catwalk and like, you know, magazine stuff, it might be a little different Mm -hmm. because we're still on the business side. You're almost pressured to tone it down. Really? Yes. So um, it's very interesting because when people hear fashion on your name, they're automatically like, oh, fashion. That's cute. What do you do? (laughs) Like, do you know, do you play with fabric? And it's like, um, actually, I'm in charge of a three trillion dollar industry with, um, a billion dollar deficits that we're trying to innovate for, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, What we try to do is not conform. You know, like sometimes something like a red lip just throws everybody off in a boardroom. They're like, you are a red lip. How can you be smart? And it's like, (laughs) what? So, um, and also like I'm a very casual dresser. Mm -hmm. Like I live for sweatpants and fly sneakers. And sometimes I'm like, my sneakers probably cost more than your suit, but I'm not going to trip. Like I'm not going (laughs) to, it's because people don't understand that they're not from that world all the time. So like there is a pressure for us to not conform and still be taken seriously. There's so many times when I enter a room and I'm like red lip on, might have a sneaker on, something chill. But like if we're talking about hype beasts or street culture or anything like that, I can go anywhere and people be like, oh, that's fly. Right. It's like if I walk into your boardroom, people are like, oh, you wore a sweatshirt. It's like, do you know what the sweatshirt is? So we understand that there's a gap, but it's like you're going to listen to what I say, because mm-hmm. if we're here to talk numbers, I got those. We can do that. It's so interesting because people first see me and they're sometimes always like, like when I do speaking events, I come in and they don't know like I'm the speaker. Yeah. So they're just kind of like, they're judging you. And then you get on stage and you're hitting them with these numbers and stats. And then afterwards, they're like, oh my God, you're just so well-spoken. Oh gosh. Well-spoken. Okay. So the pressure is to like remain yourself Mm -hmm. and to be taken seriously at the same time. And, but however, me and Britt were talking the other day, we were like, we need a sponsorship by like a, 
a flyer rent the runway so that we can wear more fly things Mm -hmm. just because it does feel good. It's like we're fashion. So we like to go big sometimes. So um, I think it's kind of both like you want to maintain your style. Because some of the things we talk about is so high level and a strategy based. And you're talking to business teams, you're talking to e-commerce teams, you're talking to investors. And so like, you don't want to throw them off, but it's like, I can't walk in a room and tone it down for you. You're yeah. just going to have to respect what's coming out of my mouth. And that's what I'm prepared to do and present. But what I find interesting is I've been in some executive dining rooms yeah. and, and things like that. And we feel pressure to conform. Yeah. And I always applaud women, especially, or, or Black folks who don't. Yeah. But you will see a startup founder who looks very different in a t-shirt and jeans. And that's totally fine because that's a part of the culture or they're a techie. You would never expect them. Well, it's not threatening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when you're a person of color and you look any type of way, it threatens people. It threatens their security. It threatens how they feel about themselves. It threatens what they think about what you're going to say. It throws them off. They can't Mm -hmm. possibly think that you're intelligent. They're like looking at your resume like you went to Cornell. Mm -hmm. You have on sneakers. And it threatens people. And it's like sometimes we're okay with that. Like get uncomfortable because you have white men show up sometimes white women and things that you're just like, you got taken seriously like that. Mm -hmm. And you don't even speak well. You don't have to have any stats or numbers. You're just up here. And because you're unassuming and because you pose no threat, people don't have the same emotional response. It is an emotional response sometimes as a woman of color who like, no matter what you wear, when you walk into that room, people are going to feel things. And the idea is like, people want you to tone that down. Absolutely. You know, you walk, you need to walk into this room and make me feel comfortable is basically what people want. And it's like, I'm sorry, but that's not what I'm here to do. And confidence gets misconstrued as arrogance or aggression. All the time. Like, you have to be meek in a way for them yeah. to be like, okay, she's safe. All the time. Mm-hmm. And that is something I struggle with personally. And I think that because I'm an entrepreneur and because I've been so independent, I kind of have an attitude of like, I do what I want. Yeah. Like, if you don't want to talk to me because of how I look or your assumption, we're just not going to talk. But mm-hmm. I can't compromise because I haven't reached that point where I'm like, well, let me tone it down and make you feel good. And that could be good or bad. So don't take my advice on that. It's just mm-hmm. how I am because I don't compromise on things like that. Ever since I've been younger, I've been in situations where I've been the only black woman, mm-hmm. period. Whether it was school, I went to, I switched to an all white school in third grade. And the first day I realized what blackness meant was when I got to class on third grade and they're playing this game called Red Rover, which as a black woman, I've never heard of Red mm-hmm. Rover. And one girl in the middle of it looks down and she's like, hey, who's going to hold that black girl's hand? And I'm like, that black girl, who is that? Because I'm like, I know I'm black, but that's not who I am. So it's like, you get so used to coming into a room and everyone's like, you're black, right. you're a woman, what are you? That you, you know, I've just developed this air of like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just get straight to business. But I can imagine for a lot of other people can feel like pressure. And my advice is just to, you know, you control the room. If you get that much attention and if you make people feel like that, then you also have the gift of shifting the energy in the room and you should take that and control it. You should take that and shift it in the way that you think is necessary because sometimes that fear of you is a good thing. Sometimes that people not knowing or underestimating you, it's a great thing. And you got to recognize what it is and kind of like, you know, in judo, you got to take that energy and turn it into something you want. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So just that piece alone, reference mm-hmm. to that, I know that it's not always easy. Yeah. Um, but along those lines of, of overcoming difficulty and obstacles, tell us about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. 
Ooh, that's a good question. And you said you were going to ask this. <laughs> I told you, people um, like, forget about it all the time. Absolutely. Extraordinary on an ordinary day. I have a lot of examples. I'm trying to think about one that would probably be, I guess, on a personal note, like walking in rooms that are all white, being underestimated. That's like regular. Mm-hmm. But to me, I had to make a decision about a relationship or go to grad school. And I think that it was one of those times in your life where you're looking at people around you and people are getting married and people are settling down. And I was in a relationship and we were falling apart. And the person that I was with was basically like, I think you should stay with me. I think we should work on us. I think, you know, like we should get married this and the third. And I had to make a decision between do I do this or do I cut this off and pursue a career that I don't even know about? Right. Do I let this go and do I change my life? And it's like a regular day for everyone else. But I think that as a woman and like just watching something fall apart that you thought was steady and knowing that you're about to deal with heartbreak while you're about to change your life and your career. I think that you what I had to go inward Mm -hmm. and I had to really make peace with myself. Right. And I had to be extraordinary in the sense of I had to be vulnerable. I had to break down. I had to let all that go. I had to realize, like, maybe you haven't built yourself up to be who you thought. Maybe, like, yes, you needed all this emotional support, but now you're going to cut it off. And I had to really hit a bottom. I just had to hit a bottom. And I was going to grad school hitting this bottom. Like, I was entering grad school, breaking up, realizing, like, everything in my life is shifting. And also, like, having to tell myself, we're about to be alone, period. Like, you're going to be alone. You're going to isolate, but you're going to rebuild because what you have to do is beyond anything you've ever done. And you're going to have to be somebody different. Right. And I feel like that low point was an extraordinary time for me looking back because at first I was like, oh my God, life sucks. I'm having, I'm about to enter this great thing. And I'm like, I don't have a boyfriend. I'm this, that, and the third. But like for many women, I think you're going to always have to make these decisions where you have to be extraordinary just to yourself. No one else is going to see it. No one else is going to help you through it. You have to make these small micro decisions of like, babe, you're going to have to be greater than this. Mm -hmm. And what I learned to do in those moments was you're going to have to tear yourself down and build yourself up a thousand times. So let's get used to it. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Go through it. Cry, be upset, do whatever. But now you have to get up. You have to move. You have to be okay. And because I could do that with myself and have that honesty with myself, I could apply that to everything else. Everything else was easier than that. Yeah. Like everything, walking into rooms, being nervous, whatever. It's like, I always told myself, like, what's the worst that could happen? Like, let's go there mentally. Let's address it. Now let's move forward. Right. Because anything after that is a cakewalk. So. Absolutely. And it's so funny because I know so many women, myself included, mm-hmm. who have that story. Yeah. They chose an advanced degree or this yep. or something over the the guy who mm-hmm. was like, stay here. Like, mm-hmm. or that's not going to work. If, mm-hmm. you know, this, this isn't going to work if you go to school there. Yep. But I don't, I don't have one male friend who has that story. Of course not. Men don't have to do that. Well, this is, I have this thing that I've been thinking of. And maybe people will tell me if it's right or wrong. I think that because men don't have to deal with pain in the same way that women do, they can always position themselves not to be in situations that hurt. Whereas women have to condition themselves to go to understand that you may be hurt. And the reason why I think this is like men have a lot of options. They can choose career first. They can choose whatever. They know they have, there's plenty of women, but they also can choose their vulnerability. Like they can choose like, do I want to talk to this girl? She seems risky, whatever. I can choose her, whatever. Whatever it is, men have a choice whether or not they want to feel pain. Whether it's, do I want to fight? Do I want to play a sport? Do I want to get in a relationship and give her, you know, all of my emotions? That's their choice. I feel like women from early on 
we are taught to just deal with pain. Mm -hmm. It is not a choice whether or not you're going to feel pain or not. It's more of like, you are going to feel pain. How are you going to deal with it? For instance, you know, when you're young and you know, you first get your period, you're going to have cramps. That's something people prepare you for. You're going to be in pain. You got to take pills for that. Get over it. Go to school. Smile. Okay, cool. So when you first want to have sex, that's going to be painful. It's going to be painful. Everyone tells you about it. Mm -hmm. You know, get over it. When you want to give birth, it's going to be painful. Get over it. So there's so many instances where some of the greatest things in our life comes on the other side of pain. Whereas I don't think that men are quite conditioned to that in the same way. They can choose. Like they might feel pain if they get into a fight again or play sports, but it's different. So like, I feel like that men don't have that story because they have privilege that women don't have when it comes to that. Like how they attach themselves, when they want to be vulnerable, what they want to give. Cool. But for us, once you choose somebody and you love them, the vulnerability starts almost instantly. You know it. And I would say like women who are not emotionally available. Men are going to have a lot to say about what you just said. I know, y'all don't hate Um, me. (laughs) But um, women who are not emotionally Mm -hmm. available have a hard time, I think, getting men to commit. Mm. Like they, they, I won't say they require that from us, but they inherently expect it, right? They do. They they don't want you matching their energy in in a sense. Even if they're not opening up in that way, it's like, well, I need you to, even yeah. if I'm not giving you like be vulnerable for me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I wasn't emotionally available for the last two years. And it's been very interesting. Like the feedback I got when I was dating has been like very interesting. Like it causes so much insecurity. And I'm like, did, did you get that? I can't quite figure you out. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> what you want. I'm like, but I told you. So there's a problem. I gave you a list of what I wanted and you're worried about, mm-hmm. you know, how much I'm giving you. Sometimes I feel like you just want to manipulate people, but that's a different discussion. Mm-hmm. But I do think that like, it just, for instance, there'll be a time as a woman, if you're very focused, I don't have a lot of emotions for anything else. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a no nonsense type of person. I have to balance that a lot. But like sometimes you don't want to be vulnerable in that way, because for me, those vulnerabilities can affect how I make money. If I'm arguing with you or I'm sad, it's going to affect how focused I am sometimes. And I know that. So like one of these things are not as important. It's not that the person isn't. It's just that like I have to maintain. So you got to respect me in the sense that if I'm not even giving to you emotionally, it's not because I don't care for you. It's because I have to maintain and I'm doing something. So we, we're just not going to take it there. Yeah. And I just think that's not really accepted for women. It's not. Men com- can compartmentalize and say, oh, yeah. I'm just really focused on my career and, and I, I saw it, you know, in school and, yeah. and whatever, like the, the girlfriend that just stood by and waited until it was the focus was on marriage or what have you. We often don't get the benefit of the doubt. In oh, that no. Way. People, yeah. are, people are like, for instance, one of my male friends married his girlfriend after six years or whatever. And he didn't really want to. But he was like, I mean, she stuck around. And what else should we do? I'm like, what else should you do? And she stuck around. And she was OK with that because she had been taught that, like, you know, this is how men are. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, you have to wait to get their love and their affection. But if you keep trying, they'll give it to you. And it's like. As a woman who's used to resolving issues and getting what she wants, that just doesn't work for me. You know what I mean? I don't think it's accepted with women. And and then people label you as all sorts of things like, oh, you act like a dude. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I act like a dude. I act like a dude because I don't want to argue with you. And I'm okay with that too. I think we're a diff- it's a different type of woman that exists right now than ever before. And um, it's hard to understand these dynamics when women are now becoming breadwinners, when we're educated, when we can do a lot for ourselves. I think it makes it difficult for men to understand, well, what can I do for mm-hmm. you? Because traditionally, they didn't have to be emotional. They had to be providers. Right. They had to do all these other things. But when you take 
the need for you to provide out of the equation. And now I need you to be an equal. And now I need you to reciprocate. I think it's actually difficult for men. And I think that women have a choice to see they're like, okay, well, you know, I can teach you and I'll hold your hand and I'll wait. Or it's like, holla at me when you get it together. Because in the meantime, I can't be disturbed. Which I think there's a lot of that that energy happening, particularly around women who are very driven, building a brand, oh, yeah. building whatever. Um, but the the part for I think I think the part that some women struggle with is like that's the energy that they feel that's yeah. genuine. But the logical side is like, oh, is anybody gonna be left by the time I, <laughs> you know, by the time somebody's ready to deal with me? You yeah. know, I think women have to understand like, mm-hmm. don't think in scarcity. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, there's plenty. Like, regardless of what it seems like, there is someone who can match your energy depending on the energy that you're giving. At the same time, don't compromise. Like, don't do anything out of need. Don't just be like, well, I just need to hurry up and get married or have some kids. I'm going to just do something like just you can always find somebody on your wave. You just got to be honest with presenting what that wave is and where you are. Because I've found that like there are a lot of men out here who can adjust, but it is a teaching thing. It's like we have to understand that this new relationship looks different from our parents. Mm -hmm. It looks completely different. So at the same time, I feel like women also have to learn how to communicate on that level with men and like match manage those expectations sure. because a lot of times like now I realize like I date and I realize like I have to encourage good behavior a lot mm-hmm. because even though I expect it it's like I want to be thankful and grateful for what you're doing to let you know like if you're not getting like googly eyes out of me or this because I'm busy I appreciate every piece of effort that you're putting into this and I want us to keep growing and maintain that now I can't you know be different, but I can try and make this easy for you to feel like you have a space in my life. Positive You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. I think also a lot of alpha women forget that like you can set these standards for men, but men still need encouragement. And they you got to find out what type of love they need so you can reciprocate that. I think we forget to do that as well. Absolutely. Because we're we're busy being like, I don't have time to be vulnerable. I don't have time to do this. And it it comes across as like, I don't have time for you. I don't need you. Exactly. And then it, it's a struggle for us because we're like, but if I get all Google Gaga, I feel weak. So you got to find the balance mm-hmm. of like, I need to let him know he's appreciating. He has a position in my life. It may not be like, you know, you don't have to pay my bills. But you can. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what you do is appreciate it. And I think that's something that women have to work through and that men have to work through as well. Yeah, it's I um I compare it to a mentor of my, mine who's like a mm-hmm. huge football fan. He's like, you know, I get so annoyed when these guys get on the field and they make one tackle mm-hmm. and it's not even a big tackle and they're like going crazy and cheering. He's like, dude, that's just your job. And I think sometimes yes. we as women do that, right? We, a man does something or makes a kind gesture and it's like, oh, thank you. Um, And because inherently we believe that's what you're supposed to be doing and you don't get a certificate for that. Not realizing that when you take the positive reinforcement out of it, someone can feel like, well, am I, am I pouring into a bucket with holes in it? Like, does she appreciate me? Am I dispensable? Et cetera. So, and gratitude and affirmation does not equate to weakness. Exactly. You You have to do that because, so I read this book called um, The Boy Crisis, Mm -hmm. and I forget who it's by. It changed my thoughts about men and what they're going through. So the book basically described like the hardship of men adjusting in a time when women don't need providers and how it makes them feel and how like the world doesn't coddle them as much. And even if you don't agree with everything in the book, it does help to give you perspective. Perspective. And just like what you're saying, it's like, I think that in a relationship, you have to do 
you have to give what your partner needs Mm -hmm. and you have to first know what that is and then do it, even if it feels unnatural to you, even if you're like, you should open my door. But it's like, yes, you should. But I'm still grateful. Mm -hmm. Like, I appreciate what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I like it because I like I said, I would much always rather be a woman. I'm not saying that it's easy being a woman, but I wouldn't want to be a black man. I see it and I, I, you know, and because of that, I understand where they're coming from and I try to be empathetic to whatever it is that they're dealing with in a way that's like, how can I support him in this role where I am without compromising myself? How do we do that? And that takes, I think it takes a lot of balls for women to do that. And I think that's why we need sister circles so we can all get together on Fridays and be like, girl, I had to say thank you again. Right. But and it's you, like, just do it. women who are like, so I don't, I'm sure because all women do it. And yeah. fellas, I'm sure you know we do it. We send screenshots of like text exchanges. Oh, yeah. Um, and I've been in situations where I'm talking to, you know, a girlfriend and she's like, he's, he's not doing X, Y, and Z anymore. He fell back and I don't know why. And I'm like, well, look at the text exchange. Like he was like pouring it on. And in response, you're like, oh, or thanks or not saying anything or, you know, and any of us, we need, need we need that affirmation. You need someone to acknowledge the effort that you're putting in. Nobody's saying that you get to have a wife because you did the bare minimum, exactly. but you just have to show someone that you appreciate it and they, they feel like they're getting a return on their investment in some way. There is power in nurturing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as women, that's one of the best things that we do. Like we can nurture. And I'm not like, don't get me wrong. Like the whole don't believe in potential thing. Yeah, you know, don't waste your time. But I feel I have seen because I have brothers and I have a father, like there is strong power in nurturing. Mm-hmm. And as a woman, if you know that you have that strength, you can nurture a lot of things in people, including men, into a greater version of who they are. But they're supposed to reciprocate that, mm-hmm. too. So, like, I think a lot of times in relationships, we forget, like, we're both supposed to be making each other better. Yeah. We're supposed to be making progress. So we're going to have to evolve how we talk and what we do for the betterment of each other. Not just like, well, I'm used to getting this for the last five years because that's how dudes treat me. You got to figure out, like, OK, so how do we get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. How do you feel? And you got to talk, you know, conversation. Use your words. I Use say this all the time. your words. Use both sides. Use Draw pictures, but like <laughs> get the message across and communication. I think, you know, we, we assume a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you just assume like because he's done X, Y, Z so long, he's going to keep doing it or it doesn't bother him or, you know, he's he's not communicating because he doesn't need to. It's like, well, you got to get past it. You got to learn mm-hmm. something. But it's also a full time job. It is. It's not easy. And when you're trying to build something, it's like, I don't have any energy left to give to that. And you have to decide, is it important enough to me now or I'm going to make the sacrifice to do that? You've got to shift things around for it. Some of the advice mm-hmm. I give whenever people are like, I'm starting a business. What should I focus on? I'm like, focus on you. So if you're in a relationship and it's not supportive, if it doesn't feed you, if it doesn't help you, if they're not introducing you to people or giving you some concepts that's helpful, put it on pause. Mm -hmm. Because another thing is like, you don't want to become that person who is demanding and going through all this stuff and you're taking it out on somebody. Mm -hmm. But you also don't know what you want from them. So it's like, you got to focus on one thing at a time sometimes because being with somebody is a full-time job of like, let me learn you, respect you, uplift you. And yes, it comes natural, but sometimes it does not. Right. Sometimes... I'm like, an ex one time was like, you don't text me good morning anymore. So I feel like you don't care. And I'm like, I don't text you good morning because I start my mornings differently now. Maybe I want to meditate. Maybe I want to pray. Maybe I'm busy. But eventually I had to be like, if that's somebody, something they need, then I need to provide that. But, you know, notice I said ex because I can't text (laughs) you every morning. I realized I was like, I can't do this. I'm not the girl for you. You need somebody who can do that. I want you to be free to like, you know, get that. So you got to know yourself. 
Right. It's acknowledging this may not be the best situation for that person or me. It's not going to be healthy for you. And good morning is a small thing, but I'm sure it was representative of some other inherent issues. And I I knew myself, I'm like, I don't do routines like that too Mm. well. Like I'm by the third good morning, I'm like, you're going to have a good morning. (laughs) You don't need me to say it. Um, I'm having a good morning. You know, I'm busy. I'm sorry. (laughs) So... Yeah, that I was think like both genders, and I said this on an, another show that I was on, like, just need to extend grace to each other. People come in with perceptions of who they think driven women are. They we, do. We come in with perceptions of men, how they're going to react to us. And it, it's going to take some time to find your rhythm with anyone. It does. You know? and, and also, we, all, we talk about the oppression Olympics on this show, like, who has it worse? If you're talking about Black love, yeah. um, kind of just putting that aside yeah. and figuring out how do we add value to each other. Who has lives. it worse? Who you want to answer think? that question? Yeah, I want to know what you're Why are you asking me? I'm interviewing you. Know. You know, I think um, to your point earlier, yeah. there are certain things that are specific mm-hmm. to Black men. Mm-hmm. Like, I know when I walk into a room, as we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, because I have a strong personality, mm-hmm. um, it is it can be off-putting to some mm-hmm. people who don't look like me, mm-hmm. right? But it's very easy for me to disarm them, mm-hmm. right? And you mm-hmm. mentioned that earlier. You yeah. you know your stuff, you yeah. what have you. For black men, I think it's a different level of intimidation. Mm. And if they're they're standing in their power and who they are, it's not as easy to pull those walls yeah. down. God forbid you're tall and and dark skinned. Right, like, exactly. <gasps> An imposing figure in some way by way of, of height, yeah, size, complexion. Whatever. So while I think um, our struggles are different, mm-hmm. I do think that there are things that I can overcome mm-hmm. in a way that that it might be more difficult for black yeah. men. Now, do I agree that people don't value us as black women in the way that um, they should mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and all that stuff? Absolutely. But I, I have so many strong black men around me who mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. and respect me mm-hmm. and will do what they can to protect mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. as well. But if we are talking about in that in that that lane of like acceptance Mm -hmm. and overcoming certain barriers in terms of stereotypes and perceptions. I feel like I'm able to do that in a more quick, quicker manner than than maybe a black man. Yeah. I don't Mm -hmm. think I want to be a black man, but I love being a black woman. Mm -hmm. Like even with all the ups and downs and how people feel and all that, it's like, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I feel like being black and a woman has never made me feel anything but powerful. Mm -hmm. And like, when you know yourself, you know your history, you know who you are, like there's comfort in that. And I do think it's, I think it's different for black men. I think their struggles are different. Even if you think about how many women, when you're dating and what's out here, you know the struggles for some black men. And right. you're like, mm-hmm. you it, you know, life got you and things got tough. I don't know if I can save you. I don't know if I can help you. Mm-hmm. We see that. And like somebody once asked me, they were like, do you feel like that because black women are so highly educated and like are pushing forward on so many planes, do you think black men are their equals? And I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. Because I was like, maybe statistically it could look like that they're not. So I was like, equal in what way? But it made me think like, if other people think that, do men think that? Mm-hmm. Do they think on the inside like, I'm not her equal or something like that. It made me wonder because I was like, hmm, that's a tough question. I think it does happen. There's a perception even in our own community mm-hmm. that she's out of my league. Mm-hmm. And that plays out in two two ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's the positive way when people mm-hmm. are like, I'm just rise to the occasion and see what happens. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, um, I think people throw in the towel too early because mm-hmm. they think that they can't match you 
on the income front mm-hmm. or whatever, the power, the influence front, mm-hmm. there's that. Or there's the reverse where it feels like a competition. So it's yeah. now it's like I got to have to cut you down to size yeah. so that I can make myself feel feel tall. Yeah. Um. So and I've, I've experienced that 50 times over, you know. Yeah. You know, as a tall woman, it is tough. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that having the ability to look most people in their eye mm-hmm. creates such a strange dynamic sometimes. Like people get really weird about yeah. it. But I think it's an interesting question like, you know, how do men feel and... All that. And that's why I think strong women just have to be conscious again of like, you know, reading the room, reading your partner, communicating, over communicating is best, Mm -hmm. I think, initially until you learn somebody. And then just, you know, what would you want somebody to do if you were in the reverse situation? Right. You know, I try to think about that. And I say this, I've said this several times and I'm going to say it again. Texting is not the appropriate mode of communication for important issues. No, because you never know. You'd be like, <laughs> what you mean? Okay. Right, exactly. Okay, like what? Like, call me because my the way my brain works, I'm going to make um, a, an analysis of this. Exactly. I'm going to get to my conclusion. That's it. You don't want me to get to my conclusion alone. So just call me and talk to me exactly. and let's get there together. Like, please stop with the whole trying right. to have serious conversations. Or time. use a meme. <laughs> Memes help me understand things better. Yeah, can't 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 handle it at all. That, right. Clearly, I'm triggered over this whole text <laughs> resolving right. issues over texting text. is annoying. Yes, it's like I don't sure. know what you're saying. Just call me. So, what's on the horizon for you? Uh, great question. So, we have another brunch coming up February 8th. Mm-hmm. We're going to start the workshop series. We have the accelerator starting, and I think in the next year, I'm actually going to start building a platform that I've been like um, developing the MVP for. Okay. So it's going to be a personal shopping platform that's peer-to-peer based. I've been sitting on it for a while, figuring out like when is the perfect time to launch. Mm-hmm. So that's going to come soon, probably towards the end of this year, because there's so much that has to be done. I do have a co-founder for that, but we got to raise, we got to do all this stuff. So that'll be fun. But um, we'll probably be out in the community trying to grow our Women of Color series. So it's Women of Color Worldwide um, offering more workshops. The Essence Accelerator is going to be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Like we're still like getting all the details for that. And I don't know what else. I'm going to just keep trying to expand and grow and like see what's out there. Um I'm open mm-hmm. to what life has to offer me. I hope to take some vacations yes, this year. Yes. Okay. Do Gotta some recharge. Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on like more investments because it's like it's cool to make money, but you also have to let your money make your money. Mm-hmm. And when you work hourly, you start realizing like this can't be like when you have an hourly rate or even a salary, you're like, what I make can't be tied to what I'm doing. Exactly. It has to make it for itself. So hopefully I'll be a real grown woman by the end of this year. So I don't know. I'm open. And where can people find you online and more about your brand? So luxerandfinch.com, L-U-X-O-R-A-N-D-F-I-N-C-H is the consulting company. Um, women of Color Worldwide, that's W-O-C-Worldwide.com. And um, yeah, you can find me on those two things. I would give my personal Instagram, but I'm a little cautious about that. But I'll give it <laughs> Is anyway. it open? It's open. <laughs> okay, go for it's, it. It's um, at underscore Jessica Veronica underscore. So yeah, definitely reach out to me, DM me, chat with me. Don't be mad at my comments, y'all. It's just my opinion and I'm sticking to it. But um, Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear the feedback on some oh, things you said on here. Y'all edit that out. Demarcus, are you going to uh, <laughs> chop some of this up into clips? Some of this controversial commentary? Oh, so you better talk out. to him about right. that. Demarcus, let's talk, you know. <laughs> We're going to have a little conversation. (laughs) 
Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you guys so much for having me and thank you for this opportunity and keep being amazing doing what you're doing, giving people of color a platform to chat about things that you normally don't get to talk about. We appreciate you. Yes. <laughs> to our listeners. Listen, especially if you're looking for a network, a support system, tactile yeah. information, connections, money, all of it. Yeah. Um, and are in the the spaces that Jessica talked about. Check her out online. Please do. And look up her brands. Um, remember to like, share, subscribe to this podcast. Tell people about this episode if you enjoyed it. Don't just text me and Demarcus for those of us <laughs> who know those who know us personally. Go out there and tell somebody as well. And remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 